It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In October, the Chinese Air Force flew nearly 100 fighter jets and bombers into Taiwan's airspace. The display of the island's defense capabilities capped off a very tense week. China flew a record number of fighter jets towards Taiwan's airspace. It wasn't the first time either. There have been 800 such missions since the beginning of September, and it's part of a pattern. Uh, Chinese military jets fly over to Taiwan's defense zone on a weekly or even daily basis. So uh, it's become a new normal for two years already. It all started ramping up back in 2016 when Tsai Ing-wen was elected president of Taiwan. We don't have a need to declare ourselves an independent state, but we are an independent country. She's pro-independence and her time in office has been cementing the idea of a separate Taiwanese identity. And we do have government and we have the military. And, and we have elections. Taiwan's existence has always been doomed by this strange paradox. It's a state with a parliament, an army, and a territory. But for decades, the Chinese Communist Party has made it clear that their hopes for unification with Taiwan are high, or, as Beijing puts it, reunification. Here's Chinese President Xi Jinping in October, making it plainly, threateningly clear that as far as he's concerned, Taiwan belongs to China. Is he really serious? Are we really to fear a People's Liberation Army attack on Taiwan? Fears are rising of a war. But is conflict less likely than a prolonged state of fear? Hello. And welcome to The China Problem, a series of thinkings with me, James Harding. This series of podcasts is intended, like all our thinkings, to try and get a better understanding of what to think. And today, we're trying to make sense of China and Taiwan, an eternal standoff or a hot war waiting to happen. Often, we think ourselves fools for taking politicians at their word, but sometimes it's more dangerous not to. I'm reminded of the American economist Herb Stein. Stein's law says that if something cannot last forever, it will stop. So, are we witnessing a terrifying limbering up? Perhaps the standoff really cannot last forever. 
to try and understand how big a risk we're facing. I'm sitting in my front room in Oxford, I'm afraid. Nowhere more exotic than that at the moment. I'm joined from rainy Oxford by Rana Mitter, Professor of History and Politics of Modern China. And although it's night already in Taipei at the time of this recording... Yeah, it's 10pm, but I'm usually up pretty late, so there's that. I think three of us are in. Sana, are you still in Taipei? In Taipei. We're joined by three guests who are taking part in the conversation from there. Brian Heo, one of the founding editors of New Bloom magazine and a former participant in the 2014 Sunflower Movement. Maggie Lewis, law professor at Seton Hall University. And Sana Hashmi, a visiting fellow at the Taiwan Asia Exchange Foundation. And from yet another time zone, politics professor Wei Chin Lee is dialing in from North Carolina. Sana, why don't I start with you? How much do you think there is a real risk of a war in order to secure mainland Chinese PRC ownership of Taiwan? In my opinion, the chances of cross-state conflict are bleak. And I've been living in Taiwan since January 2020. So uh, as someone who's living in Taiwan, we really don't get to see this kind of fear going on. Uh, and But I would say that while the trajectory of cross-state relations is a little concerning, but China has several issues to deal with in the immediate future. So I think uh, I would say that China is not going to invade Taiwan in the near future. Uh, first, I think there are several issues between China and other major powers. Uh, and Beijing's image is eroding worldwide. And in such a situation, it is actually not very lucrative for China to invade Taiwan. And Sana, can I just check, when you say in the near future, what, what's the near future? Um, as in it could be anything from five years to 50 years. So I think no one has an answer <laughs> to that. All right, well, I, I'm going to ask Maggie then the same question. Ma Maggie, do you agree with Sana, a little prospect of uh, military action by China on Taiwan in the next, let's call the near future, five years? We don't have a go bag by our door in our apartment in Taipei, but at the same time, am I more worried today than I was even a few years ago? Yes. I mean, the trend lines are concerning, and I think that's something that we need to take seriously. Uh, I, I do worry sometimes about complacency. I took my kids to go swimming today, took the dog for a walk. Everything always feels so normal here. But uh, there are reasons to look across the strait and see both the rhetoric and the military actions by Beijing. And, and it makes you realize that there, there needs to be enhanced vigilance and, um, and, and taking seriously that certainly the Xi Jinping even of 2021 is different than the Xi Jinping of 2013. Uh, so I am, I'm, not, I'm not worried um, in an immediate sense, but I am concerned. Brian, the same question to you. How fearful are you? Yeah, I would say similarly that there is not the short term uh, immediate possibility of a Chinese invasion the way sometimes it is discussed in, in media as though it might happen tomorrow. Um, I think what needs to be kept in mind is the losses for China in terms of manpower. Just you have to commit thousands, 10,000 troops. Uh, there will be loss of life. There'll be backlash against the government because of that loss of life. Uh, the economic impact because of the fact that Taiwan and China have such interlinked economies, um, that China's economy was slowing before the COVID-19 outbreak, um, the possibility of other regional actors intervening, and also the fact that this would be telegraphed in advance. A Chinese invasion, would you would see troops massing on the coast of China, there'd be time to prepare, et cetera. Um, but in that sense, I think what is interesting is that the media sometimes acts as though 
that the people in Taiwan are panicking about an imminent Chinese invasion, but that is not the case. Life goes on as normal. Um, I think what's quite interesting is that there's not there's not the sense of escalating a threat sometimes. And so there is that concern about vigilance that Maggie brought up, for example, that uh, that perhaps people are not actually taking the threat seriously. But it does not seem like something that would occur immediately just with a snap of, a, of the fingers, so to say. So- so I, I'm going to ask Rana and Weichin too, because I see them nodding. And having asked the question, I'm now going to say maybe it's a stupid question. Maybe what happens is you see sometimes the front cover of The Economist that kind of hints at a third world war. You know, there's always that temptation to report these things in a binary way, war or peace. But is the question we're really asking about China reasserting control over Taiwan, not necessarily going to be pursued by something as simple as a military invasion. And I wonder, Ron and Wei Chin, or Ron, I'll ask you first, whether you think the framing is wrong. It's not necessarily about an invasion. It's about a long-term strategy to regain control. I think that's right, James. I mean, you, you said at the beginning, Stein's law, that, you know, if something cannot carry on, then it's going to have to fall. The other way to do that, of course, is I think a French World War One general who said, rien ne dure comme le, le, tombe, le, what's it, uh, le provisionnel, no, nothing lasts like the temporary or the provisional. And of course, <laughs> the Korean Peninsula has been split for the last 71 years and doesn't show any signs of being healed anytime, anytime soon. Um, I think, you know, everything that our friends in Taiwan have told us seems to echo what I hear from, from friends in uh, in Taiwan as well, that there isn't a sense of immediate panic on these questions. But let's talk about the economic integration, because I think that's what your question is getting to. And there's a whole variety of areas in which it seems to me that over time already, at the top of my head, I want to say 80% of Taiwan's GDP is in some way linked to business or supply chains on the mainland of China. Now, it works the other way as well. Taiwan, along with South Korea, is one of two places in the world which has, you know, the golden uh, trophy of semiconductors, uh, which China needs every bit as much as, you know, anyone who's buying a car in the West at the moment. And of course, any factories in, I I suspect, in uh, the the light of an oncoming invasion or attack would find themselves essentially being blown up a little bit like the the, the equipment left behind for the Taliban to find by the Americans in, in Afghanistan. In a war situation, all these things change. And I think that Beijing knows that as much as, uh, as, as anyone else. So do you think, Rana, just to be clear, that we are starting at the wrong end of this particular debate, i.e. we always reach for the military, whereas actually soft power and economics is going to drive China-Taiwan reintegration? Soft power ain't going to do it in the sense of Taiwan being persuaded as, um, you know, a, a community of people that they want to reunify with the mainland. I remember actually being on a Zoom with a think tank in Beijing, I wouldn't say more than that, um, in you know, certainly the last half year, and asking the following question to someone, you know, who's involved in these ports of discussion. I said, what is the offer that Beijing is making to Taiwan to make reunification attractive in the first place? Saying, we'll invade you and kill you, obviously has a certain compelling nature to it, but it's not a great sales tactic. And he actually replied very honestly, keeps me awake at night because I don't actually have a good answer to that question. So if anyone's listening who's from Beijing or from the mainland has a good answer to that question, please please put it, put it in. So soft power isn't going to do it in terms of persuasiveness. Economic connections, which is not the same thing, but really very important, along to some extent with things like educational connections, there are still significant, if not huge numbers of young Taiwanese going and studying in the the mainland as as well. And of course, that sort of remaining slightly faint older generation who, you know, who not themselves, but their grandparents remember the Second World War, they still came, you know, they came over in 1949 after the Civil War. They feel that connection with the mainland that the younger generation doesn't do in quite the same sort of way. I think right now it's a little bit a different way, like the Hong Kong question. 
question about whether or not greater economic integration makes up for the fact that people are worried about the political and um, civil rights effects of any kind of greater unification. That's the sort of well, let's Wait, Jin Lee, let, I want to ask you the same question. Do you take the same view broadly that this is not going to be resolved militarily? It might be resolved economically, socially, politically, but actually the fear of a military effort at reunification is probably a little bit too far. They always talk about the military unification, right? Since after 1949, that's always a lost part of the China's territory. So if you're really on the nationalism, you start to think about the it's unfinished business of the civil war. So you want to talk about territorial integrity and nationalism is there. And then, then the leader got the, the kind of China dream, that kind of mission he want to accomplish. So, but then if, if you want to have a peaceful negotiation process for unification possibility, all kinds of scenario, and then Taiwan certainly in terms of identity sort of shifting toward the, the other side. So military options certainly becomes, if I were the leader, I would simply, uh, simply keep the military options as a last result. But then the question is, if I decide to use, use the military option, I have to think about the day after, just like we get into Afghanistan, Iraq, and the day after, what are you going to do? How are you going to pull out? What's the exit strategy? And certainly in this case, we are not talking about exit strategy, but they are thinking about if you have a pacification process and you start to do it, and then after you pacify, are they still willing to follow your command and the governance? And not to mention about the external impact as well as the economic impact. So, so can we run a thought experiment, a different kind? Right. So imagine that we've gathered together, Maggie, Sana, Brian, Rana, Wei Chin. We're all in Zhongnanhai. And humor me here for five, ten minutes. I'm Xi Jinping. I'm Xi Jinping and I say to you, here's what I want. I want the reunification of China by 2049. When we celebrate the 100th year of the revolution, I want the Chinese revolution, I want China to be reunited. And I'm going to ask each of you in turn how best you secure that outcome. And, and I know, Brian, this is a particularly unfair question for you, given that you've been involved in the sunflower protest movement and probably this is not what you want to sort of do with your thinking time. But I'm just trying to understand what would be the most effective strategy for the PRC to deliver reunification? Yeah, I think um, to jump in on that question, uh, part of Part of it is then the economic independence issue needs to be solved so that an invasion of Taiwan would not severely damage, affect uh, China's economy, so that you can actually carry this out without, for example, creating massive domestic unrest that might lead to a challenge to your political legitimacy. Uh, you also need to have the public be willing to accept the losses of troops in Taiwan, whether that be in an invasion, which could lead to thousands of tens of thousands of deaths, or a occupation. There's always a question, would there be resistance from people? Uh, I think movements such as the Sunflower Movement suggests there would be, uh, but that will also lead to loss of lives. Uh, so perhaps one way to do that is to drum up nationalism. Um, but in that sense, I also think that much will depend on the views of the younger generation in Taiwan. Uh, what will the young people that are then in power down the line decades from now be thinking? Uh, what will their understanding of China be? And so I think China in that sense does want to shape positive perception of China. 
Uh, however, as seen in, in identity trends among young people, that is not actually finding fertile ground in Taiwan. And so I think that that's one of the challenges. If I was in that Zhonglanhai meeting, I would be suggesting, okay, greater economic convergence. It makes sense of why the Sunflower Movement back in 2014 was so exercised by the trade service agreement, a greater convergence between China and Taiwan. If I were trying to convince younger people, let's say people under 35, of the benefits of reunification, how, Brian, would I best do that? Um, I think part of it would be pointing to, for example, the larger market in China, um, that job opportunities in, in Taiwan are scarce, uh, that there's low salaries, that there's more opportunity, there's more resources available if you're willing to work in China. And so in terms of some of the programs that China offers to young people, that's, uh, for example, uh, economic incentives, um, subsidies for young entrepreneurs or tech startups and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so the hope is that these economic incentives win over young people and perhaps they come to constitute a demographic in Taiwan that is supportive of unification with China because that is where their economic interest lies. Maggie, what do you do you think, just to answer this question, I'm getting worryingly comfortable with my role player Xi Jinping here, but what would be your advice on how you deliver Taiwan by 2049? Well, first, I, I think our conversation has a lot of, right now, reason it, like reassert control, regain control, reunification. And, and of course, from the Taiwan perspective, we take those out because it, the PRC, founded in 1949, has never actually had control over Taiwan and these islands. So we have this sense of you have to go back, and when we, this is what I'm glad we have a historian, to a historical sense of some broader China, if you want to say reunification. And, and in fact, what we're seeing um, is that we're greater divergence across the strait. So my, my focus is criminal justice and human rights. Uh, when I first came to Taiwan in 2005, uh, we had, for example, law professors, even prosecutors coming over from China. And I remember going to the Taipei District Court with them. That would not happen today. Uh, you've gotten more repression, more human rights violations in China, whereas in Taiwan, we've got you know, marriage equality. You've got a push to try to have transitional justice for past harm under the martial law period. And the people in Taiwan are looking at what's happened in Hong Kong and say, if that's what you're selling, we're not buying. So I think if I was being honest with Xi Jinping and I was trying to get Taiwan to be actually effectively under his control, I would have to say you're going to have to have a military angle because you, you don't have enough to sell when it comes to economics or that there's socially enough connections that that alone will carry the day. Interesting. And Maggie, just just to clarify, the reasons you're not seeing those Chinese, mainland Chinese professors and lawyers coming over to Taipei is because the People's Republic of China don't want them coming over or the Taiwanese legal profession doesn't want them in their courts? You know, it's it's gotten increasingly chilly. Of course, the pandemic creates, you know, all sorts of barriers. But even before that, um, that you found that there was just a much frostier attitude, especially since uh, President Tsai came into power and the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, came in in 2016. But I want to be clear, I put that on Beijing. Um, they made very clear that we are not going to work with President Tsai. And I think there's a tendency to try to sort of both sides this in a way that I don't think gives credit to how President Tsai has been actually very middle of the road. I mean, it's hard to find someone in the DPP who would be as 
even keel as as willing to just say the status quo is where we are. I'm not going to rock the boat. So in fact, when I look to 2024, which is the next presidential election in Taiwan, that's where I start getting a little jittery inside because I, I don't know which direction it's going to go. And, and President Tsai is a very, I think, stabilizing force compared to what could be a lot of other options. But it's interesting that you think that it's going to be quite hard for the People's Republic of China, for the Chinese Communist Party to win hearts and minds in Taiwan. Rana, what do you think of this? What's your advice to President Xi? I think the direct answer to your question is the following, and whether or not it would actually have any effect in Zhongnanhai is a really you know, intriguing answer, which is this. You go to Xi Jinping and say, look, if what you want is reunification in the sense that you want to say that you brought Taiwan back, then you have to think fundamentally about the structure of the People's Republic of China. And if you decide that there is a way in which you can think of it as being um, essentially a confederation in which different parts of that greater China all coexist, then you have to do that. The problem is, again, I think Maggie indicated this, that you've got the Hong Kong example. For a long time, it was one country, two systems. You know, Hong Kong today was supposed to be what would Hong Kong, what Taiwan would get if it, if it reunified. And since, you know, the national security law has been passed and huge numbers of freedoms have been shut down, very few people on either political side in uh, you know, green or blue in, in, in Taiwan are going to accept that as, a, as an outcome. So the question is to Xi Jinping, and this is actually a very fundamental thing about the whole Beijing regime as a whole, and actually all top leaders, I think this is true of, not just Xi Jinping himself. How much are they capable of brainstorming, thinking through, empathizing with viewpoints that don't fit their own. They've got no chance unless they're actually willing to actually go to people in Taipei, whether privately, secretly, or, or in public, and start saying, you know what, we're here to listen. We want to hear what you have to say. We're gonna to talk to you about what you want to talk about, and then we take it from there. Now, you tell me whether you think that today's current Chinese leadership wants to do that. So, Rana, all right, now we're really getting somewhere. So we've had so far three answers. One is economic convergence, the other is military invasion, and the other one is constitutional reform led by a cultural transformation of the Chinese Communist Party into an extremely sensitive listening machine. So, Sana, why don't you go next? What, what, what would your, your advice be to Xi Jinping on how to get, get Taiwan under mainland China's influence by 2049? I think if you ask anyone who's living in Taiwan right now, who's a local Taiwanese, I think you would get somewhat similar answer. And I totally agree with what Maggie and Brian said. But first, we also have to talk about terminology. Xi Jinping has stopped talking about the peaceful reunification. So if I have to give one suggestion to Xi Jinping when it comes to Taiwan, I would actually say that it, China has to stop military coercion. China has to stop threatening Taiwan. And this is actually shaping majority perception uh, of Taiwanese against China. So, so your answer, Sana, is you move explicitly away from military threats, away from coercive engagement into constructive political engagement with the ruling part of the party of the day. I can't say that it will help Xi Jinping and China, but I think it's a first step towards reconciliation, towards reaching out to the local uh, Taiwanese. Wei Chin Li. Your three options are the constitutional reforms or the so-called you know, reconstruction of the constitution. But both sides probably difficult to do it. Uh, suddenly, they need to have a political will to do it. And then again, if we understand the Chinese Communist Party, it's a party dominant in that kind of situation. 
And then if you arrange some kind of constitutional reform, then where is the party's position? That's number one. Number two, in terms of economic uh, sort of a convergence or integrations, and then it has been you know, sort of in the process, and then we, we have seen that kind of situation. Certainly, I just mentioned it's economically closed, trade or any kind of uh, you know, technology or investment, some, some are closed, but politically drifting apart. So, and also when we talk about the economic interdependence situation, when we say interdependence, there's always one country depends more than the others. It also depends on what factors or industry it depends more, whether those industries are key industry or not. So that, that option, it's already in process, but then again, still right now we see the political you know, sort of uh, drifting apart. For the military options, that's you come down to the final end. You cannot reach the political solution. You cannot reach the, you know, using the uh, economic you know, kind of trade peace series to come in, coming down to the final end of unification. You can reach some kind of status quo, but you cannot reach the final solution you want in unification. Then in that case, you're afraid that Taiwan continue to drift apart. Certainly, if I'm a, a rational thinker, I will simply just say, I, I'm going to keep the military option as a last resort. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to use it, but I'm going to create the risk and uncertainty over there. If I am keeping that military option as a, as a last resort, is there any sensible estimate of how many people die in the event of a military takeover of Taiwan? How many Chinese soldiers die? How many Taiwanese civilians die? I cannot answer that question because the, the, the reason I cannot answer that question is because it really depends on what kind of attack. You're launching the missile, you're using the invasion forces, and then I, I, that always sort of reminds me of the Cosby's argument, the fog of war. Every time you, 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 you decide to launch the war, then you, you have no idea sudden thing will happen, evacuation from Afghanistan. They probably got the perfect plan, but then something happened and they never realized that it's a self and others, that kind of situation. So so I, I fear, Wei Chin, that your answer, your three-point answer is both the most honest, but also the most unpopular with Xi Jinping, because in effect it says, look, you're not going to be able to pull off constitutional reform within the party, let alone within Taiwan. Economic interdependence may happen, but actually it might coincide with greater political divergence. And the dirty fact here is that it's unclear how many casualties even the People's Republic of China would be willing to countenance, let alone how much it would be able to wear casualties inside Taiwan. So aren't you in effect saying when you go through all of your three big options, constitutional reform, economic convergence, military invasion, none of them are really available to you? Remember what during the civil war, there's one slogan always mentioned by the Chinese communist troops. When they're dealing with the KMD forces, they always say Chinese are not supposed to kill Chinese in the battle. Is that right? We're all Chinese. So unfortunately, the so-called definition of Chinese right now in Taiwan was not popular. So if I were in, in Taiwan, and certainly I'm not right now in North Carolina, I, I would pretty, pretty much adopt a strategy. It's sometimes the so, social construct gradually, slowly changing. So if I'm with Xi Jinping, I would say, since I'm the superior forces, I mean, in terms of hard power, you are lower than me. I would try to be, quote unquote, more benevolent sort of as open it, because I'm not afraid that you, you, you swallow me. Actually, I can swallow you easier.
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Having listened to you all, right, and heard the different advice you've given in how you could get, and I appreciate your point, Maggie, about reunification is itself a mainland Chinese version of the story. But let's take a different question. Let's say that I now invite you all over to the West Wing of the White House and in to go and see President Biden. And either Jake Sullivan or Tony Blinken, the foreign policy team, is sitting around with President Biden. And I say, look, we've got this team in here. I'm worried, Mr. President, that we have got our... China policy wrong, that our starting point for good historical reasons is how we ensure the continued independence of Taiwan and the safety of the Taiwanese people. But as a result of that, our policy is driven by a military calculation. That's how we approach hard power decisions. That's how we approach the biggest resource allocations on China. But our problems these days in China are actually in entirely different places. So they're in Xinjiang on a human rights front. They're in terms of Hong Kong on the rule of law. And obviously, increasingly, they are around, you know, multilateral organizations, WHO and Wuhan. They're around TikTok and the regulation of tech. We shouldn't organize our China policy around Taiwan. Actually, our assessment is, is that there is a status quo, a nervous status quo, but nonetheless a status quo that's going to hold. We should reprioritize the way in which we think about our China policy and relegate the amount of time and resources we're putting into defending Taiwan. Who wants to go at that first? I'll ask Maggie. So I think, first of all, that 
Taiwan is not just a subset of U.S.-China policy. It's not just that you know, Taiwan is the unsinkable aircraft carrier with the radar emanating from it on the cover of The Economist, that this is a place that has value to the United States and should be dealt with in its own policy not just thinking about Beijing. But I would say, too, that you know one thing that we are seeing from the Biden administration that I think is so important is an emphasis on the multilateral nature of supporting Taiwan. I have never seen voices from Japan and official voices from Japan be so vocal in saying that Taiwan's security is an issue for Japan's security. And we all know that because you look at the first island chain. You just have to pull out the, the globe from my kid's room and see, wow, Taiwan is this island, and then you don't go far up and you're in Japan. So we knew that. But to hear that being put out there in public is huge. South Korea, much quieter. But I think, too, that um, by having the Biden administration really look at this and say, yes, you know, the U.S. is, of course, the most important friend of Taiwan and the U.S. must have its back in a military situation for t Taiwan to survive. But this isn't just about the U.S. and Taiwan and China, that there's other countries that really also have a reason to think about these issues. We're seeing Australia, for example, their, their representative here, not, not an ambassador, but representative, um, is being, you know, I think, you know, very vocal on Twitter and supportive. We've seen a number of European countries uh, sending vaccines to Taiwan, not backing down when there's been pushback about using Taiwan instead of ROC. So I, I think that that's all really important um, for Taiwan to be in a network of friends. I see that. And, and actually, maybe that is part of the answer. Maybe more of a multilateral approach to Taiwan is part of a recalibration of the China policy itself. But I suppose... It's interesting, in doing this series, thinking about how you handle China, kind of as countries handle it, companies handle it, we as citizens handle it, one of the things that's striking is that most of the problems you're talking about don't cross the military threshold. Right. So when you're talking about freedom of speech in Hong Kong, you're not hearing people say, well, let's get the army out or Western armies out to defend freedom of speech. Even in the context of what looks like a mass human rights violation, some people say is a genocide in Xinjiang, you're not hearing people say, we need to use hard power to defend the rights of Uyghurs and address the problem in Xinjiang. The one area where you talk about hard power almost all the time is Taiwan. And so what I'm really asking, Maggie, is whether or not we're getting that balance wrong, that the things that are really big problems now, Xinjiang and Hong Kong, are being dealt with too softly, and the Taiwan, which is always con sort of considered in a military context, is actually being dealt with, if you like, in, in too heavy-handed a way. Taiwan's relationship with China and the PRC is fundamentally different than Hong Kong or Xinjiang. Uh, Xinjiang is supposed to be an autonomous region, of course, autonomous not at all. Um, and even Hong Kong, even though it has special status, or it's supposed to under the basic law since it was returned to the PRC in 1997, but Hong Kong is part of the PRC. And, and so I worry too about lumping Taiwan into the Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, that we need to think of Taiwan in a completely different manner. I mean, the economist has said, and I believe it, that the US democracy is getting lesser marks than Taiwan's democracy. And don't get me wrong, it is cantankerous here. There are fissures, there's lots of fighting, there's disinformation, misinformation. But whatever you know, you say it 
it is a democracy, and it's been that way since its first presidential election in 1996. Rana, what do you think to this? Do you think that there is a a reordering of priorities that the West needs to make in terms of its handling of China, and where should Taiwan sit in that? I think that there is certainly a lot of um, recalibrating that needs to be done looking at separate issues, because actually, I mean, you mentioned Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, which might be a sort of, you know, trinity, if that's the right word, of difficult issues to deal with. But actually, you could add to that, you know, South China Sea, you could mention um, 5G. And once you start doing that, the reason that I think there needs to be calibration is that there's a danger of lumping absolutely everything together in one huge pile of difficult stuff that China is forcing people to, uh, you know, either put up or, or shut up uh, about in that in that sense. Taiwan is, as, tai- as Beijing itself has pointed out over and over and over again, the subject of a probably globally unique limbo situation. The 1992 consensus is a phrase that people who have been looking at the Taiwan problem for a while will, will know as the kind of Schrodinger's um, cat version of Taiwan status. It's not independent, but it's not part of the PRC, and it's recognised there's one China, but, you know, who knows which that China China is. And for a long time, Beijing was willing to not push that. You know, so again, we have to point out that it's the desire of the PRC in this point to kind of bring it to a, a point of conclusion that's driving uh, a great deal of, uh, of, of this issue. All of these are reasons why actually I think it is important to make sure that there is some sort of settled agreement on how to keep Taiwan going, even if it's in some version of the Schrodinger situation we're in at the moment, which is different from Xinjiang and Hong Kong. Brian, actually, I'll ask you more squarely if you did get a meeting with President Biden, given your experience on the in terms of political activism in Taipei today, what would you actually like him to do? Um, that has not happened, but I think part of it is, is as others have said, I think uh, part of it is that Taiwan is situated in this larger regional framework. I think what is interesting is that China does actually situate Taiwan, Tibet, Xinjiang, Hong Kong in a similar framework. Sometimes you do see similar policy rolled out at each, uh, for example, economic subsidies or economic incentives with the view that this will erode away at independent identity. It is a sociological fact that when uh, the economy is bad, separatist identity, quote unquote, is on the rise. Uh, it's also driven, I think, by the, the kind of Marxist understanding of undoing identity in that way. Um, but then I think when you look at the hard facts, Taiwan is different from these because it has a state, it has a separate political system, it has a separate economy, and has a military, which is maybe the most important point. And so I think that's the factor because I think it's not just US hard power, it's also how US hard power interfaces with Taiwanese hard power, the the interaction between the Taiwanese and the US military or arms sales between the US and Taiwan in that sense. And I think it's also then how it fits into a larger regional framework because there are these larger actors that have a stake in this uh, with regards to shipping routes, for example, through the Asia Pacific, uh, freedom of navigation, um, economic and political links to Taiwan and, and so forth. And what do you say to those people, I suppose I've been tiptoeing around this, what do you say to those people, particularly in the US, who criticise America's Taiwan policy? Because what they say is that we're going to look back at the end of 100 years where we will have spent billions, billions and billions and billions on military assets that we've never used and frankly were never going to be used because there was never going to be a war in which the US was going to meaningfully engage in fighting Taiwan. What do you say to those people who think we need to rethink the Taiwan policy? 
I mean, the long-term costs to the U.S. are probably higher if there is this uh, loss of Taiwan to China than there is in terms of, let's say, uh, sales of military equipment and so forth. I think also the economic relation of the U.S. and Taiwan goes both way. Uh, it's not just a, a kind of sink of U.S. resources that Taiwan also has strong links to the U.S. It's key to U.S. supply lines for semiconductors um, and so forth. And, and, and I think that that is worth pointing out. But Sana, same question to you. You're in the West Wing. You're giving policy advice to Biden. How should he handle Taiwan? I think as an outsider, I'm uh, pretty satisfied with how Biden is dealing with Taiwan. I think Biden administration policy is much more action-oriented than how Trump was dealing with Taiwan. Trump was also proactive towards Taiwan, but it was primarily to racket the issue with China. The Trump administration was actually using Taiwan as a pawn or a card against China. So I think there is a difference when we talk about Biden's policy towards Taiwan. And there was one problem which I had with Donald Trump's Taiwan policy, and that was that Donald Trump wasn't really motivating other countries to support and talk about Taiwan. But Biden is doing that. Now we are seeing uh, uh, there have been several joint statements between US and its partner and allies that have talked about the importance of uh, maintaining peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. And as well as the last senior official meeting of the Quad, there was a mention of the importance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Of course, the mention was only in the US statement and the other three countries didn't really mention about Taiwan, but at least we know that there was a, a talk about and Taiwan was discussed in greater detail and the importance of maintaining peace and stability in the strait. Which indeed, do you agree with that, that actually Biden has broadly got Taiwan right at the moment? thinking is usually U.S. policy since 1979, pretty much the sort of, a, there's some degree of regularity. U.S. neither endorsed Taiwan independence, nor allowing the Taiwan's unify with China. In other words, it, it's a policy sort of a leeway from a strategic point of view. Everyone simply just need to get the map. U.S. looking from the Pacific Hawaii side, how are you going to deal with China? Taiwan is the crucial island chain, uh, that kind of, sometimes they call the island monolith over there, you're connected with the, the Japan. So if you want to sort of prevent China coming into the Western Pacific, Taiwan is the key. And Taiwan also got the deep water harbors all over there. And so once it's occupied or unified by, by China, that's a completely different story of it. Taiwan certainly is an unthinkable aircraft carrier. Unfortunately, this aircraft carrier cannot move. We, we don't need to engage in some kind of debate whether we want to abandon Taiwan or not. If you abandon Taiwan and then look at the map, if you believe in the Mahan's theories of the influence of the sea power, then China actually was quite fascinating by it in 1990. That's why they continue to say that if we cannot simply just say continental power, we also need to be a blue water maritime power. And that, that's how they con continue to build or expand. So, China's idea, actually, if you want to fulfill the China stream in a Sinocentric view, in the Silk Road, one belt, one road, that kind of situation, that's a crucial part. If you occupy, or you cannot say occupy, from their point of view, that unify Taiwan, and then once they unify, certainly everything is is at, at their disposal. Which, and thank you for that. You've, I feel bad because we've just opened up a whole new question, which is the extent to which Western policy is not just about the defense of values in Taiwan, but actually a set of strategic interests and the, you know, the nature of the Pacific. But I'm going to end, if I might, just with Sana and Brian and Maggie with a, a simple question, really simple question, I hope a short answer, which is this. 
If you do care about democratic values, if you care about human rights and the rule of law, and you want to preserve those things and ensure that they continue to thrive in Taiwan, what would you want Western countries to do? And what would you want their citizens to do to support those governments in the pursuit of those three very valuable things? Sana, you first. Uh, when we talk about Taiwan, we only talk about Western countries. Why don't we talk about the fellow Asian democratic countries as well? Uh, Taiwan should also look towards countries such as India. There is a lot of cooperation that is going on between Japan and Taiwan right now. Uh, but I think Taiwan also has to take a step towards countries like India and work towards uh, creating a rules-based order and uh, both the countries have shared democratic values. Ex uh, expanding cooperation with India, it would, it would be a good step for Taiwan's international standing. Thank you. Maggie. What Taiwan needs is to feel secure that it has the space to continue do, doing exactly what it's doing. It has a, a fantastic constitutional court. It has um, a you know, thriving academic life. And at the same time, though, Taiwan needs to do more to defend itself. I recognize that, that there needs to be um, a way to go towards a volunteer military where young people want to volunteer. Um, there's more work being done on resilience training, getting the population in a mindset. So if the power went off, if their cell phones went off, are they ready to handle that kind of hardship? You know, how much would they defend their country? And that's untested. But I think that strong, steady, as the Biden administration has said, rock solid support uh, is what's needed. Not fireworks, not a lot of excitement just something that's really going to feel like you've got a partner um, that is in it for the right reasons. And those reasons being that we want to have those values thrive um, and hopefully not just be that Taiwan is a bastion and in a sea of not having those values, but, um, but really building up a network. And so I'll be interested to see with the summit for democracy, I think it's not of democracies anymore, it's for democracy, um, what role uh, Taiwan plays? Because it, if it doesn't have some role, I, I, I will be very disappointed. Brian. Um, I think I would then call on those people that are interested in supporting Taiwan or claim to support democracy more broadly to educate themselves about these issues in Asia, uh, what is going on in Asia. I think that one sees often this very abstract understanding of Taiwan or, or other countries in Asia and the threat they face from China, even from, for example, Republicans that are very hawkish on these issues. Uh, they will routinely, for example, you'll see on social media and other places, uh, confuse U.S. policy on Taiwan. That is U.S. policymakers confusing this, for example, mixing up one China policy and one China principles, sometimes not actually being able to get straight the, uh, the way China frames it versus the way the U.S. frames these sort of issues. And so I think more concrete work needs to be done on that. Brian, thank you. And in fact, thank you all. I have to say, listening to you it was incredibly clarifying for me. So thank you. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks. Thanks. Bye -bye. Bye. Thanks all. I hope we'll stay in touch. As I was listening, a very odd thought came to mind. I was reminded of my first house, the one that I moved into when I came back to London after university. It was built as temporary accommodation for railway workers in the 1890s. I moved in in 1994. And so I was struck by what Rana had said about how temporary accommodations can actually last for a very long time. And listening to Wei Chin in particular, I found myself thinking, well, if I were Xi Jinping sitting in Zhongnanhai, none of those options would seem particularly attractive or effective. And to a certain extent, I was quite reassured by what Maggie and Brian were saying about the health of Taiwanese democracy, the strength of rule of law. Given what's happening in Hong Kong, 
I certainly subscribe to the point that we need to be more attuned to its value. And it's easy to be sceptical about something like the Summit for Democracy, particularly given the issues that are unfolding in the world right now. But I really do take Sana's point that we need to think differently about the way the map of the world works and the connections between those democracies. It's something that I'll take with me into the rest of this series as we look at the ripple effect of democratic values or not on China in the world today. Please do listen in. Better still, you can join in. You can become part of the conversation by joining our newsroom. Because at Tortoise, we're an open newsroom. We want to hear what you think. You can become a member by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend. You can use my code, James50, to get 50% off. You'll get access to all of our journalism, all of our podcasts and our live thinkings, where we continue to try and make sense of the news every day. So thank you for listening. Thank you too to Wei Chin, to Brian, to Maggie, Sana, and to Rana as well. This episode was produced by Morgan Childs, Klitsis Sala, and Katie Gunning. Tom Kinsella wrote the original music. Thinking with James Harding is a podcast from Tortoise Studios, which is run by Kerry Thomas and Basha Cummings. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.